Covert Action. Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio program and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm your host, Chris Garaffa. And I'm Rachel Hu. And we're happy to be here with you on Covert Action Bulletin. We have many stories today and we want to get right into it. The city of Atlanta is set to move forward with its $90 million training center, which is being called by locals as Cop City. But the development has been met with a lot of resistance. One protester has actually been killed by police and at least seven have been charged with domestic terrorism charges for resisting the building of this Cop City, where they expect to be there to be training in urban warfare for police, among other things. At the same time, protesters across the country have taken to the streets after the video of the police murder of Tyree Nichols was released on January 27th. Tyree Nichols was beat to death by officers. It's absolutely a heinous, heinous act. And the Memphis Police Department Scorpion Unit, which was the unit that was responsible for killing Nichols, was disbanded. Five officers have been charged in the last few days since the release of the video. At least two more officers have been removed from the police force. So there is so much for us to get into there. But either way, I'm happy to be joined now for the show by Monica Johnson, local police brutality activist and organizer in Atlanta, who's been involved with the Defend the Forest campaign to stop Cop City in Atlanta. Welcome to the show, Monica. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Always happy to have this conversation. There's so much to get into. I know earlier today you were at a same day press conference that was called by the mayor in Atlanta in support of Cop City. I want to go to this quick clip that you took from that press conference earlier today. But they did it on purpose because they want to only answer to a small group of people. That's right. They want to answer to the CEOs, to the billionaire developers, to Black Hall Studios, to Cops Enterprises. They don't want to answer to us. Why are we going to take that line down? So Monica, I want you to tell us more about this press conference. Why was it called and why were you guys locked out of it? Why were the protesters kept from being able to go inside? Well, um, this press conference was to, um, it was in joint action with the CEO of DeKalb County, which is you know an interesting title. And it was to supposedly, you know, tell the community that this project was going to be beneficial for the environment, good for the community, provide jobs, et cetera, and that it would, you know, be something that would improve the lives of Atlanta's residents. Also, you know, was an announcement that the land disturbance permit had been given by DeKalb County, even though in December um, it was denied. So they uh, put together this, you know, press conference with less than a day's notice. Of course, because they knew that people would show up and show up we did, even though there wasn't a lot of notice. It was, you know, pretty blatant that they do not want uh, to hear from the community. The majority of folks that um, obviously do not want Cop City to go forward. So we were locked out. That Even some of the press was locked out. I did notice that some local press outlets on Twitter were saying that they had been locked out of, of this press conference, that community members certainly were not able to uh, to be let in, even though they said, you know, we want to. This is part of our community. We have a right to be here. 
Um, but let's can we step actually step back a little bit? Uh, because I think, you know, many people in Atlanta, certainly and across the country have been following this. But for those who haven't heard about Cop City, Monica, and this $90 million deal, all of these acres of land that are involved, what's the what is Cop City? What is Atlanta want to do with this and who are the forces behind it you know it's called we call it cop city because it's supposed to have a mock city it's supposed to train these police in quote unquote urban warfare um and the usage of bombs various types of you know tools of death and destruction what we can't help but see is you know clamp down on dissent and make sure that the gentrification and selling out of the city to developers continues. So the Wilani Forest, uh, which is the indigenous name for this location, um, is one of the last old growth forests in the Atlanta area. And they're, you know, wanting to clear cut it to basically play training games, play war games against the local community. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's so much at stake here when I really think about it. I mean, I've read a lot about the story. I recently learned, of course, about the killing of Manuel Tehran, who was a just a, a individual activist, a climate activist who's been involved in the encampment that's been going on for the last few months. I mean, this has been a long struggle. And even though I've seen a lot of reports that I think that I, I've been noticing a lot of the mainstream media around this, and especially the police and public officials, they're really trying to make this out to be like this is just outside agitators. People from the outside are coming in. And that's the reason why this is just such a problem. Who are these people? And even though there are people, of course, coming from all around to show support, I mean, fundamentally, there are many, many, many people in Atlanta who've been involved in this struggle. And the struggle has been waged by organizers in Atlanta. It's not waged primarily by people outside. And so I think it's important to bring that up in this conversation because a lot of it is there's a lot of confusion, I feel, around this story because there there really isn't clarity around what exactly Cop City is and what it will do. And I think, as you brought up, it's really concerning to me about the militarization aspect that we see here. I mean, this is not just a regular training center that's being built. This is not just a training center where they're going to teach cops to do, you know, basic moves like disarming somebody who might be coming at you with a knife. It's a it's a center for training police in urban warfare. I mean, that's what it's for. It's they have literally like the mock-ups, like I've watched all the videos where the police have done these crazy diagrams of what the city is going to look like. And essentially they have mock entire like blocks and blocks that are going to be built for them to train in response to potentially supposedly terrorism. But to me, the way that I look at it and the way that I'm seeing that is that it, it looks a lot to me like what they the kind of training that they were doing actually at Fort Bennings, which is also in Georgia. And that that's the training that was done for the, the, the different people that were involved with the different agencies that were involved with and the different officers that were involved with the School of the Americas. And so I really can't help but right. see that connection that's being drawn in the way that they're setting things up that are it's military grade kind of equipment that they're working with. I mean, they have a Black Hawk helicopter pad that they're building at this thing. So yeah. it's just out of control. So I'm curious your thoughts on this militarization and some of that outside agitator narrative that I think to me doesn't ring true, but you're the person from Atlanta. So I'd love to hear more. Yeah, I mean, that parallel is really glaring. I think that, you know, Georgia, the political establishment, um, Brian Kip, you know, they often, you know, make overtures to business. This is uh, the best state for business. It's the best part of the South to be in. You know, they call it the capital of the South. They call it Black Mecca, whatever, um, for Atlanta. But we see over and over, like, when there, you know, needs to be a spot where there's a lot of land, but also the consolidation of, you know, military police forces to protect business interests, it happens in Georgia. Georgia is also where they are set to expand Folkestone Ice Detention Center to be the largest in the country. You know, we call it the land of civil rights, whatever, whatever. But really, um, Georgia is, um, you know, held hostage by the political establishment using it uh, for these aims of, you know, protecting big business and um, sharpening the tools to um, make war here and across the world. Yeah, Monica, you know, I'm really curious to just as a quick kind of follow up question about if you could share more about what policing is like in Atlanta. I mean, I know the case of Rayshard Brooks. 
I know a, a variety of other cases that I've just heard of, but I, I'd like to know more about what policing, the current institution of policing looks like in Atlanta, because my, my immediate question and what I've seen a lot of, of what people are talking about is like, why is this even necessary? And I'm, I'm genuinely curious to know the kind of state of policing as it is and what could potentially change with the building of Cop City. Cops in Atlanta are largely Black. There is this, you know, marriage of supposed community initiatives with the police, uh, which does, just doesn't happen only in Atlanta. But down the road from my house, there's this At Promise Center, it's called, which is supposed to be like a, a little um, a building for children to do recreation. And it's just it's owned by the police. And then they have the city um, or the neighborhood council meetings there. And so there, you know, it's all this, uh, why won't, why can't we get kids to come, you know, do something productive, whatever. But it's like, you're, you know, just giving over your information to the police. The the police just very blatantly serve capital here. When you see them, you see them just sitting outside of whatever um, restaurant protecting um, Chick-fil-A from the roving masses, I guess. Um, and, you know, being um, contracted out as security at, you know, late night restaurants, et cetera, and just sitting around, you know. And these are in the places where they're trying to, you know, claim that it's up and coming. Many of the black neighborhoods in the city, obviously, are up against the ropes. Uh, the communities are up against the ropes when it comes to this push for gentrification. Um, the houses in my neighborhood were the, the average value was like $12,000 in 2011. Now all the new houses are going for 300, 400, 500. Okay. So in a community where there is crime or danger or people go through um, violence and things like this, you know, whenever you call them, it takes 45 minutes, whatever. They're not, they're not, you know, useful <laughs> in that way. Um, they don't, you know, um, if you get robbed, we've gotten robbed, they come and write down what you lost and like, you know, they don't even follow up. I didn't want to talk to the cop, but they don't follow up. So, you know, pretty much useless and except for, you know, just standing around to protect um, whatever, you know, business or, you know, harassing someone on the street or the myriad of, you know, car wrecks that happen in Atlanta with the, the terrible highway system. They're just, you know, on the side of the road dealing, riding a ticket for a car crash. You know, they very much have their ability to show up when people are protesting. Um, many people have seen the tanks and everything uh, from the National Guard. And there's a lot of um, just, you know, working together. Uh, so as the, as similar to uh, many places across the country, when you might need them, they are not there. Um, when there is um, a possible stolen order of fries, they're, you know, right in your face. And it seems like, you know, it's certainly by choice that these funding decisions and and, and policing decisions are happening. Uh, I, I remember that it was just actually exactly three months ago. We are recording this on January 31st, and it was exactly three months ago that the Atlanta Medical Center shut down a major hospital in Atlanta uh, because it wasn't supposedly profitable enough and the owner of it. Wellstar Systems said that they were trying to come together on what they say were creative, long-term, sustainable solutions, uh, but basically saying, like, we don't have enough money to continue to run this hospital profitably. Um, so the city can clearly pump a whole bunch of money into policing so that does not serve the poor people, the black and brown communities of Atlanta, but they, you know, they also can't, they're not going to fund the, these hospitals either. And I'm seeing that connection, especially when we talk about this cop city development, which is going to cost $90 million. And is, uh, that's actually two thirds of that apparently is going to be paid by the Atlanta police foundation, which my understanding, Monica, and to correct me if I'm wrong, but this is kind of like the, basically the police union but they have a lot of corporate backing uh, for this police union. Uh, according to Eleven Alive, I was reading Delta, Waffle House, Home Depot, Georgia Pacific, Equifax, uh, Wells Fargo, and a number of other companies have representatives on this board. So, you know, they couldn't put money, $60 million maybe, into a community hospital or health center, but they're certainly willing to put money into 
a you know into cop city into a you know police training facility that is going to only uh, help the police terrorize the residents of Atlanta. Am I am I reading this right in the the bigger picture? Absolutely. I mean, um, Andre Dickens, the mayor, made all these overtures when Wellstar decided to uh, close this hospital, but didn't do anything concrete. Uh, it's still closed. They, um, I don't even know the the uh, status of the beds they're supposed to add to Grady, which is the only other level one trauma center in the city. But that Grady was also already extremely overcrowded. Um, and, you know, there's no action. Um, and these, these are in the neighborhoods where, you know, the old fourth ward is a historically black neighborhood, but it's also one of the most rapidly gentrifying. So it really doesn't even make sense for Wellstar because where their healthcare system did turn a profit in the year, in the past year and has, uh, I think two billion in assets, but they're expanding the, the hospitals up in the richer part of town, of course. Um, but they, you know, want to make these areas into the richer parts of town. Basically, the the board members, the APF, you know, investors, uh, they come from Coca-Cola. They come from Waffle House. They come from uh, Cox Media, who is the owner of AJC. And while AJC reports on this story, um, you know, and, you know, forwards the outside agitator issue, they don't mention that we are investing in this. So there's just, you know, quite a bit of collusion to make sure that, you know, the the people that, um, you know, bring in uh, so much, quote, unquote, um, investment and development projects like apartment, you know, the ugly square apartments, the ugly square houses, mixed use development where you just buy things people uh, don't need, really. Um, there's always enough money for that, always enough money to. Uh, give a tax break to one of those companies, but not enough money to keep a hospital open, which is really just the effects will continue to be devastating and unfold over time. Um, and yeah, it's very sick. No, certainly. I mean, I think it's very telling to me that that is the kind of situation that's unfolding. And not to mention also that in terms of funding for Cop City, it is $60 million that's essentially just corporate-sponsored funds that are coming through, being funneled through to this project. But it's also $30 million of tax dollars. And I think that that says a lot to me about the priorities of a city when they're willing to spend $30 million to train police in urban warfare tactics and military-grade tactics. I mean, that's literally a lot of what they're building is so that way police can practice in scenarios that like military is practicing. I just, I'm not going to let that go because I think that that's insane. That's an insane thing. And and they say things like, oh, well, you know, what if there's, what if there's another Pulse nightclub shooting here? It's like, well, I'm sorry, but what about Uvalde? Like when did police ever at any point in time ever even help in mass shootings? I mean, I'm sorry, but they're not able to prevent mass shootings. And not only that, when they are there on the scene, they literally let kids die. I mean, that's what happened in Texas. And so the, that community is still reeling from that reality. I mean, they, 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 they messed around for 40 minutes getting stupid hand sanitizer. Like, I'm not going to forget that. So I just think that to me, 30 million tax dollars is being spent in a city that is rapidly gentrifying, where people are struggling to survive and they're closing down hospitals. It just shows a lot about the people in power and what they represent and what their interests are. I just got to jump in real quick, Rachel, because you brought up the, the pulse reference. That was something the mayor said. What if there's a pulse like situation here. And, you know, as a as a queer person, I was just like, you know, the first Stonewall was a riot, by the way, against the cops. So don't bring up, you know, LGBTQ people talking about how the police are supposedly going to help them. I'm sorry. That was also sticking with me, too, as well as the thoughts about Uvalde. No, but certainly. No, it's it's important, Chris, because I, I think it's totally nonsense. And I think that it's absolutely outrageous and it should be outrageous to everybody, not just people in Atlanta. But I, I do think, and Monica, I'm curious your thoughts on this. I think one of the, the main pushbacks that I've been seeing, people saying, well, it's a training center. It's a training center. And, you know, there has been a major call in 2020 for more police training. And I think that that's reasonable. People want to see police learn how to de-escalate situations, not escalate them and not shoot people. But I, I think that it's important to go more into what this center is going to do, because I'm, I'm curious your your kind of immediate way that you react to people that might say, well, isn't training good? I mean, what's your response to that? Right. I mean, we have to, uh, other people have said the five cops who killed Tyree Nichols um, had gone through a lot of training. Cop Garrett Rolfe, who killed Rayshard Brooks, 
Um, he had gone through cultural sensitivity training along with other types of training. He still shot someone in the back that was running away. So we have no evidence that training makes them kill fewer people. It seems to be the contrary. The more money is spent, the more killing. They make these claims and, you know, that $30 million of taxpayer money when there was hours and hours of public comment against it is just um, really showing that it's not about the people. It never has been. It, um, you know, they don't really ask what people want. They, you know, they might have a session, community engagement session, and, you know, just they throw away the notes. They might as well throw away the notes um, because they don't do anything that the people ask for. I think also it, there's so much, you know, just this collusion between all of these officials because the land disturbance permit that they announced um, on this press conference, they locked us out of today, um, that has been granted by the cab was just denied in December. There was one denied in December. So we know that, obviously, these officials, probably um, the EO Thurman of DeKalb County, got in a meeting with Andre Dickens, and they said, okay, we're not going to wait on the process. We're going to go ahead and get this done. And so you can't claim that um, you want to help the community when the real decisions are being made behind closed doors and when the community do speak up you call them domestic terrorists. You call them outside agitators. Most of the people I see at the rallies, I've been seeing for years. They're organizers. They're a part of the community. They're protesting for all the injustices. But instead, they keep running with this with this narrative because it benefits them. They don't have to say, well, I have a reason for not listening to the, these Atlantans. I can just say these are people from Ohio and Colorado and California. Yeah, certainly. I mean, as you're talking and you're talking about the domestic terrorism charges, I think that's one thing I do want to like get into a little bit more, because I think that that in of itself makes people I mean, it immediately kind of makes people imagine, well, what were they doing to earn those charges? You know, what was happening? How you know, what I mean, like there, there's this kind of a certain immediate assumption that's being made. And the assumption that in some ways I think should really be made is, is how are we going from trespassing charges to domestic terrorism charges? I mean, that's a huge, terrifying implication for civil rights. It's not to say that protesters are, are always doing 1000% the right thing. But domestic terrorism is a very serious charge. It's a very serious charge for very serious moments. And so I'm really stunned that we don't even see domestic terrorism charges against people who are part of crazy right-wing violent actions. I mean, even the Proud Boys going to places like drag brunches and harassing drag bunches. I mean, that's literally domestic terrorism. What about these people that are at abortion clinics? Not the ones who do get charged that actually bomb the clinics, but the people that are literally sitting there terrorizing people on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I just can't understand why these kinds of charges. Well, I, I do. I understand why, but I can't I am infuriated to know that these kinds of charges are being <laughs> levied against people that are standing up against something. So I'd love for you to go a little bit more into, you know, not only the activist who was killed, but also the domestic terrorism charges that were levied towards the others and the kind of current situation that those organizers are in. I know that the, um, I know that they have been able to talk to people because they've been behind bars, but um, I'm wondering the what are activists saying about these unfolding things that are happening in Atlanta? We're really just seeing, you know, the lengths they're going to to try to uh, stymie, you know, any sort of public input. I think, uh, you know, lots of people, I think about, you know, most of the people that are arrested for domestic terrorism um, on that Saturday rally were just protest attendees. You know, there's no proof that they did anything that would warrant such a charge. Um, And the police chief uh, was on record saying, breaking windows and setting fires is terrorism. So they're, you know, creating this expansive um, definition of terrorism in order to be able to, you know, use it as a bludgeon to try to chill the movement here. And I think especially Manuel and all of the protesters, you know, there's not any evidence that there is, uh, these are just vile criminals who, you know, want to put the community in danger and things like this. You know, and they're they're using like extremely high, you know, bail to also um, keep folks from being able to come out and speak, um, keeping folks from being able to get back into the movement. And I just think that, you know, it really is it's chilling in some way, like we have to keep going. Um, But there is it's shocking that the people, especially, you know, with Andre Dickens having um, just gone into office in 2021 and he ran on, you know, 
oh, I wouldn't have voted for Cop City. Oh, I, um, you know, would have done this and this and I want to repair this relationship, et cetera. And he's really just double, triple, quadruple down on criminalizing um, protesters and allowing for all of the other police agencies, everyone uh, to come in and try to overwhelm this situation. And um, like uh, folks have said, like since uh, November, December, they were increasing the aggression at the forest. So it was like inevitable that they would create some clash so that they could say that the, um, you know, it still remains to be seen, of course, um, if any, if the trooper was actually shot by any protester. Found it, I find it rather doubtful. But, you know, they were, they have destroyed, you know, so much of um, the, you know, peaceful camp in the, in the forest. And they're using just so much force um, to, you know, use that force and then it kind of retroactively justifies and creates this image of this violent protester. And, you know, all over the country, people are seeing, oh my God, a cop car was burned in Atlanta. Riots have taken over the streets. And it's just really has not been that. That has not been the reality on the ground. There are, you know, been multiple marches with children from um, the school, uh, the preschool. Um, You know, families and things are involved. You know, having dinners and, uh, you know, circles with um, indigenous folks around here and everything. Um, But they, you know, know that if, it's seen that that is what the movement is actually made up out of, then there won't be this. They won't have the consent of the people. They won't have justification and people won't be, you know, on their side on this. So, yeah, certainly. I mean, I immediately think as you're talking to just about the fact that, you know, why is it so convenient that the police have no body camera footage? I mean, they intended to go to that 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 encampment. For the sake of raiding it. I mean, they've been raiding this encampment for months now. I mean, months. It's just regular, the kind of raids that they've been doing on the camp. So the police came with an intention, a very clear intention to raid the camp. So why would you then turn off your body camera if you know what you're engaging in and the potential of what that could mean? I mean, especially if police are supposedly afraid for their lives, why would they not want to have clear and concise evidence that absolutely, unequivocally, without a doubt, these people are violent and I have the right to defend myself? Why would they not do that? I mean, because obviously, in some ways, it's very clear that that's not the situation. I mean, that's my just looking in as somebody who wasn't necessarily there from the facts that I've been presented and what I have seen. It doesn't make any sense to me that police would move in the way that they've been moving if, for example, they were going up against an crazy violent force that they are terrified of. So, you know, nonetheless, I I wanted to bring that up because I just think it's really kind of ridiculous. And the fact that they're using bail as a way to keep people from talking, I think, is very important because the news cycle, it just shifts. It changes so rapidly. I mean, we're already on a whole nother news cycle when we're talking about Tyree Nichols. I mean, we've already in terms of police brutality, we've already moved past the story of Cop City in many ways. And we shouldn't move past it. I mean, there was somebody who was killed. And it's really important that we pay attention to what's going on. But that's a really smart tactic, because if these activists were able to get out and say and share their piece about what they saw the morning of, there'd be a lot. There'd be a lot different conversation, I think, happening in the mainstream media. But Chris, I know you want to get in here. Yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts, but I, do, I think I do want to talk about Memphis certainly as well, because this is all connected. But a couple of thoughts about this. I mean, tree sits are a long time tactic used in the environmental movement, you know, preventing forests from being, you know, just cleared, logged and all of that. This is, you know, not a new tactic. You know, this is something that has been engaged in for, for, for decades, if not longer. The other thing, you know, it just reminds me of these charges, the domestic terrorism charges, reminds me of the activists in Colorado and the Denver and Aurora era area who, you know, in 2020 were charged with things, including kidnapping for holding a demonstration outside of a police department. They didn't kidnap anyone. The police claimed that they couldn't leave their own heavily armed, fortified police department. So the length that the police will go to to trump up these charges against people who are engaging in resistance and justified resistance, you know, never ceases to amaze me, even though I think, you know, we have to be expecting it as resistance to police continues. Speaking of that, I think we should move into talking a little bit about Memphis because there have been protests across the country um, as, you know, the the video of the police murder of Tyree Nichols was released on January 27th. And just hundreds of protests across the country have taken place. 
the Memphis Police Department announced that they were uh, disbanding the Scorpion unit that these officers were a part of. Five of the officers, of course, have been charged. And in a few days since the release of the videos, at least two more officers have now also been removed from the police force. But we're coming into this conversation coming out of the year 2022, where 1,192 people were killed by police, and that's according to Mapping Police Violence, and that number was the highest in a decade. But also in 2022, the Biden administration announced the $37 billion so-called public safety plan, which included $13 billion to hire 100,000 new officers. I mean, Monica, we have to see, right, these connections between Cop City and Atlanta the Scorpion unit, the murder of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, and all of the other cases, 1,192 at least uh, in 2022 alone across the country. How are people in Atlanta looking at Memphis and, and what are you, how are you looking at all this? Definitely, you know, we're all seeing it as, you know, symptomatic of what the system is doing. You know, post-2020, the, you know, powers that be really understood that people were not going to take violent, grotesque police or brutality lying down anymore. Um, and that's why they acted so rapidly in this case of Tyree Nichols, even, you know, after the um, or in the midst of the second day of protest, you know, canceling or disbanding this um, Scorpion unit. You know, there was just a vigil last night for Tyree here in um, Atlanta, along with the other, you know, protests that were over the past weekend, folks are seeing, especially with the, you know, number of um, almost half of the cops that will come, that they claim will come to train at Cop City, will be from out of state. They will be from most likely nearby areas like Memphis, like Tennessee. And that's another, you know, instance of this collusion between all these different police agencies to act in a way that, you know, supposedly is bringing peace to high crime areas. We're really terrorizing the community um, and, you know, displacing that community most of the time um, and in um, service of bringing in new capital and new residents. So, you know, everyone sees that it is very much connected and that, you know, and there's another piece, uh, actually, um, because the, the, the police chief of Memphis, C.J. Davis, um, had been fired from Atlanta, um, Atlanta's police uh, department over a decade ago for her mishandling of a child pornography um, case from one of the policemen there. But on top of protecting a cop who uh, engaged in uh, child sexual abuse, she also presided over the Red Dogs unit, which was Atlanta's jump out boys, Atlanta's basically uh, close to equivalent of the Scorpion unit, even though there is another Scorpion unit in Atlanta. The, the Red Dogs were disbanded because of so many lawsuits of, um, you know, violation of civil rights and police brutality. And so she was fired from there, hopped around and ended up chief at Memphis to do the very same thing. So it's very disgusting. But, you know, her job is still there, even though she has, you know, un helped to unleash all of this death um, onto black communities um, from Georgia, I think also South Carolina and Memphis. Tennessee. Now, I'm so glad you brought that in, Monica, because I, I was going to definitely bring it up because it's definitely infuriating to see those connections. But also the fact that this I, I can't believe that she would be involved in something, frankly, as heinous as covering up sex crimes against children and, and being able to still have her job. Like in what in what industry can you do things like that and like be able to continue yeah. on? Like, that's just outrageous to me. But it's not surprising. You know, it's not surprising by any stretch of the imagination. But I know, Monica, you were in Memphis. Speaking of these connections, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, too, that activists in Atlanta would want to support what's going on in Memphis in terms of the resistance movement. And I know that you were in Memphis over the last weekend and being a part of and seeing the protests. So I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on, on what they were like, like what were the protests like this weekend? What was the energy like? And, and also what I'm interested in knowing about, too, is that before this moment, you know, there's this, been this kind of 
weird applause I felt of the police chief because she got in front of it Mm -hmm. and called it heinous. And, you know, they they're doing it just seemed kind of strange to me that like, obviously, this is a new playbook that they're running in some ways, right? They saw what happened in 2020. And they know that they don't want to have that happen again. So how do we get in front of it? I mean, just because you said sorry, before we had to see how bad it was doesn't change the fact that somebody was brutally murdered. But either way, I, I think that there's something about what these units have been doing prior to this moment. I'm certain you talk with people there who share their testimonials and their stories about what policing has been like in Memphis. So I I think we just can't get it twisted. We can't be applauding, oh yes, this is so great that the police department's taking accountability. I mean, they got to this point for a reason. So I'd love to hear kind of your account of what you saw, what the protests were like, and also what people were sharing about policing in Memphis. Right, definitely from the jump very militant, very focused on getting the demands won. You know, the first night Friday, we held a major bridge coming into Tennessee um, for about two hours, more than two hours. And, you know, the chant was, they're taking our lives, we're taking their money because people see that connection of they kill us so that they can continue to make money, that we're in the way of their, uh, you know, continued buying up all of the houses in a in our um, locales of having to, you know, people having to steal and make a way out of their way because their wages have been um, held down by the the lobbying and the, you know, behavior of the corporations that, you know, are investing in one way or another in the police. Um, so I think that the, the community was very much, um, you know, tired already. This being, um, you know, a very... Uh, heinous, disgusting thing that we have video evidence for, but there were several other victims and families of victims at the rallies talking about, you know, how they had been beaten as well, um, but there wasn't body camera footage or it wasn't released. They refused to release it um, on how there was a, a family, a mother and son. He had been um, shot 14 times by the police and there's still a, a bullet lodged in his back. And the settlement was only $200,000 and the police are still in the force. And another a father of a son who had been shot just in December and killed. Um, and so it's very endemic in the system in these uh, in Memphis. And knowing that, you know, immediately they just fired the five cops and it took continued pressure to get the other two, you know, relief of duty um, coming into today. Um, I think it also, you know, has that correlation of, um, you know, we have these five bad apples, we have these five black men, when there are several others on the scene, and, you know, they're trying to see, like, what level of, you know, you know, what's the smallest amount of punishment we can, uh, you know, meet out to keep these people from um, overtaking or rioting, you know, to push us, but also, you know, preserve pretty much the same standings, because, Many folks have pointed out Scorpion is um, has been disbanded, but, you know, that doesn't mean the police in Memphis are going to start, you know, just uh, being kind and protecting the community. Uh, If they don't, you know, just get folded into um, a different agency, they'll probably come up with something that they name something maybe a little bit less aggressive and continue doing some of the same things. The other demands, uh, though, because the organizers on the ground are aware of this is to stop police from participating in uh, pretextual traffic stops. We know that like there's just extremely disproportionate numbers of Black folks who are stopped and cited um, in the city of Memphis. Of course, this trend is very um, you know widespread. It's true. Like we should imagine a world in which you know if folks are doing something minor, and of course they had to come out and say there's no evidence that Tyree was um, engaging in any sort of reckless driving. You know. There could just be someone writing a ticket. It doesn't have to be violence and murder, especially with all the money used um, on these things. Federal funding, you know, federal funding to kill people, but not federal funding to feed people, not federal funding to um, provide health care for people. These are states that won't ban Medicaid. So, you know, it's very clear to the community that they have, you know, these are uh, majority. Well, land is no longer majority, but. Memphis is a majority Black city, and of course, the highest rates of poverty are in the Black community. And folks see that instead of any sort of help coming from the government, um, it's the money is being spent to arm and militarize the police to terrorize the people. 
that are being already pressed down, you know, by the these economic policies as well. That's such a really important connection to make, you know, with the economic policies, because, yeah, I mean, the, the traffic stops, the harassment, the the door, the walking down the streets, you know, the the mass police presence that this Scorpion unit was supposed to have. You know, we do see it and we you know under one name or another in any city. You know, here in New Haven, it used to be they just called themselves the beatdown squad. You know, that you go to any any sizable city and you'll find, you know, talk to people and you get these stories and, you know, wonder whatever name it is, you know, just because they did disband this Scorpion unit, as you were saying, doesn't mean that the cops are, you know, like you said, going to be all nicey nice all of a sudden. But I also do see it as a significant victory. Uh, in the sense that, you know, they recognize that, like, all right, we can't be as blatant <laughs> about this anymore with the Scorpion unit. Right. And they did a lot of this stuff in a way preemptively because they saw what happened in 2020 and they said, we can't have another 2020 because, you know, if we have another uprising like we had in 2020, it might not just end kind of like it did. It might just continue. And that, I think, is what the the state the police, the politicians and the corporations and CEOs that they represent are most afraid of is that the rebellion doesn't stop. The resistance actually grows and doesn't stop. And I keep seeing people saying, well, you know, all these, you know, the protests, you know, for for Tyree Nichols aren't as big. And I think that's such a, a misdirection when you're looking at, you know, how people are responding to this because people are organizing. I mean, whether it's Atlanta or New York, or Memphis, or LA, people are organizing and having these conversations and being out in the streets. And I think it's something we need to be, you know, so aware of that they did learn so much from 2020. So we have to learn, not just from 2020, but from 1968, from 2022, from every year. And there's so many lessons. And I think, Rachel, I want to hear from you too, what you're thinking about in terms of the lessons um, that we all should be learning from, you know, right now and in the recent and further history as activists look to continue the movement against this state terror that will continue against us. Yeah. Unless I mean, we put a stop to it. No, certainly, Chris. I mean, one of the things I think about immediately and a, a big part is as an organizer and as an activist, I think a lot about is like we really have to understand the nature of the state. We have to understand what the purpose of police are. And it's really important we understand that because it kind of in so many ways doesn't matter how the, the face of the police changes as long as we understand their fundamental purpose. And in the United States, as a capitalist country, I mean, the purpose of police, not only were they founded as slave catchers, but they were also founded literally as strike breakers and to protect the interests of private property. I mean, that's what police are. And that's ultimately what they still are. That's what they represent. And that's who they're here for, which is why they can let kids die in Uvalde. It's why they don't really necessarily step in and do a whole lot when it comes to actually helping communities in any way, shape or form. It's why women get treated like there's there's thousands and thousands of untested rape kits in this country. It's not like they're here to protect women, even though that's what we always say we want police for, to protect women. So police are here to, to serve the interests of the state, the hands down period. And I think that when we understand that, when we understand the true nature of policing in this country, we're able to really grasp and understand what's happening. Because I do see, and one of the lessons I'm taking away from what we saw in Memphis is that they are changing tactic. They, they don't stay stagnant. They recognize in the era of social media, in the era of cameras everywhere, that in order for them, and they have to release this footage, they get to control exactly how the narrative goes. And that's what they chose to do this time. They chose to release the, the body cam footage, get all the mainstream media involved, get literally get in front of it as much as they can, because they thought that that would be the right tactic. And because it's new, I think people are reacting in a way where they're like, well, maybe I'm not quite sure what to make of that. I think that maybe is a good sign of change. And it is. It's a reaction to protest. But also, it just means that the way that they do things is going to have to look differently. But at its core and at its heart, what they are here for hasn't changed at all. I mean, I think a little bit, too, I remember back when there was this police, there was a shooting that happened in Brooklyn. This was, I think, in 2015, this happened. There was two police officers who were shot in Brooklyn. 
And we had it was it was crazy when this happened because this was during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement when people were protesting. It was actually actually the it was the winter of 2014. That's when it was, because that's when we called um, I was involved in an organization that was called in action when when these two cops were shot because we were still protesting either way, because the police being shot had nothing to do. It was just a random occurrence that happened that had nothing to do with the anti-police brutality protests. But every mainstream network in America was saying this is you have to stop protesting. This is awful. How could how dare you? This is ridiculous. And we went on every mainstream media outlet and we said to people, hey, like this actually has nothing to do with this. I mean, this this happened. This happened over here. And frankly, the police brutality issue that we have is all the way over here for Michael Brown and for Eric Gardner. This has nothing to do with whatever you're talking about over there. And so nobody protested. There was only one protest that happened. It was the protest that we had organized in New York City. And so it was crazy because it was just crazy to be a small group of people. It was still quite a large protest. I think it was a few thousand, but a small group of people in in the grand scheme of things to still continue forward. And I bring this up to say, just as a lesson to think about, is that Years later, there were police, there were five police officers, I think it was, that were shot in Dallas. And it actually didn't do anything to hamper the movement at the time. People really just saw it and were like, all right, I know that's unrelated. I'm going to move on from that. And so even though sometimes it can feel like these moments are, aren't like, you know, individually, what does it matter? What does this one protest make a difference? Should I go out there? Should I be there? It does. I mean, we really don't know how history changes and unfolds. And I think Memphis could be a moment like that, too. I mean, people like, should we protest? Like, is it, you know, that they did everything that they said we're going to do. Should there be action? And there, I think there might have been some confusion for people around that. Like, well, I guess the demands were already met. Do I need to come out? And to me, I think the answer is unequivocally yes. We still need to come out because not only was somebody killed, but the 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 actual system, the institutions that are in place that led to this point are still in place. And that's why we need to continue to protest. But that's kind of my immediate kind of things I'm drawing. But Monica, I'm certain you have your own conclusions you've been drawing as well. Yeah, I think um, I totally agree with you. And I think it did have that effect on some. Like some people, you know, were afraid. Also in Atlanta the same weekend, uh, Brian Kemp, the governor, you know, unleash the uh, National Guard. So people are were afraid to go outside and to, you know, didn't know what would happen. Um, and I think that's, you know, strategic on their part. And I think that arresting these cops certainly, you know, shows that um, the change in tactic. But yeah, I mean, these police killings and police brutality pretty much uh, continues unabated. A, a large purpose of protesting as well, you know, if we're strategic about it, is to get organized, not just to maybe, um, you know, respond to this situation, but to realize that we see this over and over for a reason and that we have to uh, be able to sustain a long term fight against it in order to do anything about it. So I think that a lot of folks in Memphis, you know, understand that and are pushing for more and more changes over time and, you know, want to see their community transformed, made whole actually hold not just um, the arrest of these cops, but a world in which people aren't killed by the police, where we don't need and we're not told that we need third or more of our money going to militarized occupation forces um, that say they protect and serve. And I think that, you know, you know, especially in Atlanta, you know, L.A. and stuff where there have been very recent cases of police killings um, that weren't treated in the same way because we still don't know the names of the folks who killed. Uh, George Gita in um, Atlanta. There hasn't been arrests of the folks who killed Keena Anderson. The struggle is continuing. There is um, always going to be another one um, as long as things remain in this way, especially, you know, we already talked about the police chief in Memphis, you know, having a very terrible history um, of, you know, just being a drain on the community, being a net negative for the community. The media have been counting down to the release of this video you know, which is pretty macabre in the way they did that. And so creating like this kind of scary environment in which people weren't sure what would happen. They were afraid their cities would burn down, et cetera. And there's no evidence of that. The people who wanted, you know, of course, you know, destroying property has no bearing. It's not close to how many lives have been stolen from us. But um, the people, you know, don't want to, destroy things for destruction's sake. You know, they want to build. They want to bring people into the fold and support each other. 
Um, and that's a lot of what the the environment, the feeling, the spirit in the air was in Memphis was supporting each other. Everyone was saying no one here is going to get arrested. Lock arms, stay together, watch out for each other because we can't do any of this stuff alone. So really one of the greatest takeaways is that more and more of us are realizing that we have to be the ones to do it. We have to be the ones to bring change. And, um, you know, the some of the demands being granted and this specific case does not mean that we're done. Mm, certainly, Monica. I think that's a definitely a great place to leave it. I mean, my, my final thoughts on this, too, is that I really encourage people to look at what the protesters in Memphis were saying. I think one of the things that was most moving to me was how many people were calling for systemic change and not just systemic change in Memphis, but systemic change around the country. I mean, this is what people want. I think that I think that it's a really beautiful thing to me in some ways to move from 2014, where we were caught up, frankly, just caught up in every minor detail of the case of Mike Brown, where I remember the exact fights I got in with people about the very specific things related to X, Y and Z and the coroner's report and da, 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 like literally all of the details were things that we were fighting about. Same thing with Trayvon Martin. We were fighting about the specifics to this point where people are realizing like this is an epidemic. This is a serious this is a, not only a, like an epidemic of police violence in one city or another city. It's across the country and it's serious. It's severe. And so I really think that seeing people call for systemic change and recognizing that one or two things, even just charging these cops isn't enough. I mean, that's how low they've made us set our bar that charging the police, not Mm -hmm. even getting not even them getting convicted, just charging them means something to us. That's how low they've set the bar for us. And I just think that it's really refreshing to see people want more and demand more and call for more and see how this is part of a a bigger pattern and a bigger problem that needs to be fundamentally changed. But either way, we are going to have to leave it right there. That was the voice of Monica Johnson, activist organizer in Atlanta, who's also involved with the Defend the Forest Atlanta campaign against Cop City happening. And there is so much more we could talk about, but we are all out of time. You're listening to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio show and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government since 1978. We are so happy to have you on the show, Monica, and we are going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much, guys. Great talking to you. Before you go, if you like what you heard today, we really want to encourage you to support independent journalism. You can do that by going to patreon.com backslash covert action magazine, become a patron and get early access to this podcast as well as other exclusive content. And if you're not a patron, be sure to subscribe to get all of the content from past episodes that you don't want to miss. But either way, you've been listening to Covert Action Bulletin. I'm Rachel Hu. And I'm Chris Garaffa. Covert Action Bulletin is the official show of Covert Action Magazine and is brought to you by way of WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio in New York. If you've missed any of our episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Covert Action Bulletin, or you can listen on your station's archives. So we're all out of time today. Thanks again for listening to Covert Action Bulletin. Covert Action Bulletin.